You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Hello, I'm Charles Cooper, and welcome back to our ongoing study that I have entitled Eschatological Geography, the world map at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. I know that there are many of you out there who are very interested in biblical prophecy. You believe the Word of God, and you believe that Jesus Christ is going to literally return to this earth as he promised, and will judge the wicked, remove them, and then set up a kingdom that will last for a thousand years. This is our conviction. This is our belief. We hold to it, and we very well should. But now, in that context, it's important for us to make sure that we understand exactly what Scripture teaches so as not to be misled nor to be pulled off into some fantasy or into some sequence that has absolutely no biblical basis. This is why, ladies and gentlemen, that I pound the pulpit as much as I can to encourage people to develop a consistent biblical hermeneutic Bible study method that will corral your desire to be fancy in interpretation, limit your attempts to make the Bible say anything that we want it to say, and thus do more harm to the cause of Christ than good. It is my belief that eschatological geography, that is, the shape of the world map at the time of Christ's return, must be in place and must have certain defining traits in order for it to occur, that is, our Lord's return. If you were to draw a line, a circle, around the Middle East, there are basically four countries that that circle should encompass at its extreme. In modern-day Italy would be to the west, modern-day Turkey would be to the north, modern-day Ethiopia would be to the south, and modern-day Iran would be to the east. These four compass points would give you a very, very good indicator of where we are in the end-time sequence at any given moment. The world map is a far greater indicator of where human history is in connection with eschatological fulfillment than any other predictor. Now, this is my personal conviction that unless 
the world map has certain geographical designates with people groups in place, the end time sequence simply will not occur. There is no need for you to be overly concerned, upset, confused, frustrated, or frightened by events that may occur. They, they have some significance, but they don't have significance in terms of being an indicator that we're moving into that final seven-year period that I believe will mark the transition from human history as we know it to the physical manifestation of God's physical rule here on this earth. There are basically 10 nations that I believe are absolutely essential and critical to the end time sequence. The world map must evidence the geographical footprint with these people groups present. National Israel, Egypt, Assyria, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Libya, which the Bible calls Put, Ethiopia, which the Bible calls Cush, Iran, the Bible calls Persia, and Turkey, which I believe the Bible recognizes as Goma. These ten nations are absolutely, in my opinion, essential to an end-time sequence. If you don't see these nations on a world map, you can be assured that the end-time sequence that will bring about the transition of human history from what we know and experience to the rule of God manifested through the person of the God-man Jesus Christ it simply is not going to occur. Now, certainly these things can happen overnight. I mean, you can go to bed one night, wake up the next, and life has completely changed. This is true. But until that change occurs, my friend, there is no need for you to be hysterical or to be frightened or to have anxiety or to run out and buy the next late Great Planet book because you believe that we've entered into that end time sequence. It simply has not occurred. Now, prior to 1947, as we discussed last time, there was no physical geographical presence of the peoples, the Jews, on the world map. National Israel did not exist. There was no designate of a people and a geographical location on the world map for Jews. There was a lot of desire. There was a lot of people wanting it, including the Jewish people themselves. But there was no designate. Now, this is very, very important. There was no political government. There was no prime minister, there was no king, there was no national elected leader of the Jewish people, and there were no Jewish people located in enough in numbers significant to have an influence, which means that prior to 1947, no one should have been overly concerned that the end time sequence 
was going to begin because it was not. Now, you might say, well, it's easy for you to say since it didn't happen and we were long after that. But my friend, I believe that if you know God's word and you interpret it correctly, you would have come to this conclusion prior to 1947 and the fact that there was no political government in a land called Israel with the power to determine the people's commitments or like thereof. Now, this is extremely important in light of the fact of events that occurred. And I want to make reference to one of them to show you how people who incorrectly interpret scripture and, uh, and apply principles that are not biblical can mislead thousands and thousands and cause more harm than good to the cause of Christ. In 1782, a young a boy, a baby, was born, a boy, who's, whom the parents named William Miller. He would grow up to be a Baptist lay preacher, and in his attempt to reconcile Scripture and bring coherence and cohesion, he landed upon Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, which says, And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, Miller took this verse and concocted a date for the return of Jesus Christ. Using the interpretive principle of the day-year principle, Miller and others interpreted a day in prophecy to read not as a 24-hour period, but as a calendar year. So each day represented one year. Farther, Miller became convinced that the 2,300-day period started in 457 B.C. with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes I of Persia. Simple calculations then reveal that this period would end in 1843. So, as Miller began to teach and began to popularize this notion, thousands began to follow and believe his teaching. It is reported that Miller said, quote, my principles in, in brief are that Jesus Christ will come again to this earth, cleanse, purify, and take possession of the same with all the saints sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. So according to William Miller, Jesus Christ was going to return sometime between March 21st, 43 and 44 in order to finish out the biblical prophecies related to Israel and set up his kingdom on this earth. He began to popularize this notion and many, many began to follow and believe what he said. His whole system, this whole theology, let's call it, was based on a false principle of biblical interpretation. 
there is no biblical hermeneutical principle of day-year prophetic interpretation. There simply is not. The Bible talks about weeks that can equal years, but no day that equal years as an interpretive principle. And Miller built a system which thousands believed based purely on the incorrect and false interpretation of one verse in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. Of course, Jesus did not return in the designated period, as I could have told them. It became known as the Great Disappointment because most Millerites simply gave up their beliefs. People were destroyed emotionally, psychologically, having put so much into this belief and it having failed. And of course, just as the guy who said that Jesus was coming back in 88 with the little pamphlet, 88 Reasons for Jesus' Return in 1988, when it didn't happen, they immediately then modify their system and find some error that allows them to make another date. And this happened, of course, with the Millerites. After failure, the failure of Miller's expectations, he moved the date to October 22nd, 1844. The date became known as the Millerites' Great Disappointment. He didn't come between 20 the 21st of March, 43 and 44. And then, of course, he didn't return on October 22nd, 1844 either. Hiram Edson recorded that our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and wept till the day dawned. Now, my question is, why? They wept and were broken and disappointed and let down because of a false interpretation of Scripture. This happens over and over and over and over again. Interestingly, out of the Miller-Wright movement, we have a denomination called the Advent Christian Church. Seventh-day Adventist Church was also um, touched by Miller, as were other groups who believed in Miller's predictions only to be disappointed and had to modify their convictions and beliefs. My question is, why? It's because they did not consistently apply principles to the interpretation of scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, the one conviction and hope that I have is that you will not allow yourself to be misled by phenomenological events that occur that are purported to have significance for end time sequence. This happens over and over and over. In my lifetime, there's been almost one per year. 
some some event, some supernatural, uh, eschatologically potential event occurs, and people run with it, write books, do seminars, teach conferences. People get hot and bothered, upset, frustrated, worried that the end is near and that Jesus is going to return. And they set a date and people get all hot and bothered about it, only to be disappointed and life goes back to normal. Now, William Miller, based on the very Bible that he believed, should have been stoned because he taught something that prophetically simply did not come true. He died a few years later in 1849 after his failure. Yet there are people who continue to follow some of the very foolish practices of William Miller, continuing to cry, the sky is falling, only to be disappointed, and has caused many people, I think, to be frustrated in their faith, and in fact to lose faith because they believed the lie that never had biblical significance whatsoever. I can tell you with the fullest, most resolute conviction that the end time sequence that is, the 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period that many believe is in fact the transition period between human history as we know it and the sitting up and the rule of God through the God-man Jesus Christ for a thousand years on this earth will not occur, cannot occur, until there is a world mapped, shaped by countries and peoples whom the Bible designates as significant in that very end time sequence. I can tell you that absolutely the Millerites were confused, frustrated, misled, duped, because they simply did not hold to the valid principles of a consistent hermeneutic in the interpretation of Scripture. Prior to 1947, there was not going to be a return of Christ. The key people, the key people connected with the seventh week of Daniel, Jews. The key city, Jerusalem. And prior to 1947, ladies and gentlemen, there was no national Israel. There was no political government with self-determination. There were, there were no peoples who could sign a covenant or make a covenant or have a contract or anything remotely related in terms of being Jewish to initiate that final seven-year period that the Bible speaks of in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Therefore, no one, no one should have been suspecting or allowed themselves to be caught up in any kind of fervor that the end-time sequence was going to be initiated prior to 1947. 
course, they didn't know 1947 was going to be the year that Israel would regain its land and that it would become a national people group and that there would be a physical, geographical designate on the world map, Israel. But it happened in 47. There is a second group of people that must have a geographical footprint and designate, which the world map does not show. And of course, that is the Assyrians. The world map today has no geographical designation for Assyria. Most people probably don't even know that there are Assyrians. There are. There are people in their original geographical land in the Middle East occupied by people who are Assyrians. They don't have a geographical designation. They're not recognized, but they are there. And of course, there are Assyrians all around the world living in exile because of the persecution and the ongoing decimation of the Assyrian people, no less seen in the last uh, upheaval that happened in that land that was put down by the Americans as they tried to establish a caliphate. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 23 to 25 says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptian will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, one man wrote a book called The Forgotten Prophecy about the Assyrian people and that God's promise that he is going to use uh, the Assyrian people as one of a tri, uh, triumphant uh, in the eschatological future. But the question that you need to ask now is, where are the Assyrian people? There are, there is no geographical designation on the world map designated Assyria or Assyrians, and yet the Bible says that God is going to use the Assyrian people as he has used them in the past and that they're going to be a significant people, one of three, Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. Thus, the necessity of a national restoration of the Assyrian people, just as there was a need for the national restoration of the Jewish people. God will ensure that this will happen. And I'm here to say that until it does, there really is no need for you to be caught up in the latest fervor over the possibility of the 70th week of Daniel beginning when there was no Israel. And even now, there are no Assyria or Assyrian people in a geographical designation which will be necessary. The first time we meet the Assyrian 
peoples or the land itself occurs in Genesis chapter 2, verse 14, where we are told that there is a river. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, a river that runs east out of Eden. Now, of course, this is describing the land uh, of Eden as it was uh, when Adam and Eve were on the earth and these four rivers that watered the whole earth. Now, you need to understand that the earth was one solid landmass at this point. And there were four rivers that flowed from Eden, and I believe they flowed in four directions, and they watered the whole earth. These four rivers, one of which flowed, flowed east, flowed east of what is called the Assyrian land. Of course, we get the genealogical connection in Genesis chapter 10. Sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Cana. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Septah, Rama, and Septeka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty, mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Achad, and Selna in the land of Shinar, of Babylon. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehobothir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. This genealogical uh, restatement of Cush, Egypt, Put, and Cana, who were sons of Ham, is extremely significant. It tells us that the people we now call Assyrians, were the first people on earth to be recognized as mighty rulers, kings, people who were able to dominate others. Nimrod, the son of Cush, the grandson of Ham, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, scholars don't know exactly what is being described here. They don't know what these words actually mean in terms of the significance of the relationship of these people to God Almighty. I believe that these are this designation here is that God recognized and saw in Nimrod a man whom he could bless, and he did. And that that relationship is ongoing and has never ended. Thus, in the Old Testament, we're going to see Nineveh in a very important book, in the book of Jonah. We're going to see people that God had love and hope for and still does. In fact, the prophecy that we read 
in Isaiah chapter 19 is so significant and should be understood in terms of its importance in the interpretation of biblical prophecy as we go forward. I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the Assyrian people and the geographical location of those individuals will be a huge, a significant, a significantly important people group for the end time sequence. And right now, you do not see a geographical designated place known as Assyria with the people groups who occupy it. And until you do, there really is no reason for you to allow yourself to be pulled aside, frightened, confused, or frustrated as to the possibility that Jesus is going to return in any time soon. Apart from a huge turn in human history related to the Assyrian peoples and that geographical location over there, unless something happens overnight, it can. But unless it does, you're simply allowing yourself to be pulled away into foolish speculations of man, much like the people with William Miller, who ultimately was simply disappointed, as millions have been, and probably will be again, because they don't take Scripture at face value, and they don't know the whole counsel of God. They zero in on one verse and make it the theological capstone of their thinking. Foolish, unnecessary, and often leads to doubt and frustration. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 